If you could upload your consciousness into a machine, would you? This week on Download This Show, we are dedicating the program to the concept of transhumanism. What is the next evolution of humanity and technology? From chips in bodies to AI superseding our intellect and much, much more, what is it and how will it change the future of what it means to be, well, human? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show, a special themed episode about transhumanism, the distance between humans and what comes next. Our guest this week, first up, Elise Bohan. She is the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Uh, Alongside Elise, we have Peter Zing, the co-founder of Transhumanism Australia and Digital and Data Solutions Lead at KPMG. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Mike. Out of curiosity, Peter, what is Transhumanism Australia? Uh, Transhumanism Australia is the local community of a global movement. It's about 2 million people all around the world, and really it's about um, things helping use science and technology to enhance and transcend the limitations of our human biology. So, for example, longevity, intelligence, and our well-being all could be using science and technology to make that better. And right now we're seeing at the epicenter of all these things, technological breakthroughs happening before on a daily basis, and it's how do we actually accelerate that to make sure it's doing for the well-being of humanity. Do you have any technology in you right now? <laughs> yes, I have the smartphone right now, which is actually, <laughs> if you pretty think about it, this futuristic device all around the world. And if you go back and travel time, this is like magic right now. And eventually <laughs> also have the augmented reality assets. Oh, I was and, hoping uh, you'd have a chip in your arm or something. Come on, <laughs> come on. Uh, we got the meow. It's not very practical, right? <laughs> no, not it's yet, not. Anyway. We got our friends uh, meow who's been using it as his Opal card for the last few days. And now uh, we've also got things like biometric sensors to help people alive and since looking at diabetes. So Elise, you've been writing about this and, and working on this for space for a long time. When, when you sit at dinner parties and you explain what transhumanism is, what is your best way of describing it to people? Oh, the perennial conundrum of the elevator pitch. Yes, Honestly, I, I often go straight <laughs> for Elon Musk and just kind of say, you know all the stuff that Elon's really into, you know, like becoming a multiplanetary species, transcending the limits of every boundary, um, you know, doing the Neuralink thing with machine brain interfaces, thinking about AI and how we can use that to make systems more intelligent. It's the best place to kind of anchor it to just to get the gisty sense or the flavor of what this is all about. Then, of course, you really do have to break it down and go from there. But I think that's that's my dinner party version of, hey, using science and technology to expand our reach over the world and to really go into moonshot territory. See, I think the thing both of you, both of you focused on the technology part of it, but actually the thing that makes the word transhumanism interesting to me is the human part, right? Because, you know, technology has been around for, for a long time, but actually what makes transhumanism interesting is an area of a sort of examination and particularly for this show uh, here, Peter, is that it's really about what's changing about us. So what is it specifically that you see changing about us, our bodies, that technology can have an impact on in, in just in the next few years? And we're seeing it's a, a symbiotic relationship between us and technology. 
right? It's seeing more and more emerges of what we're relying on to enhance what we already have. You know, I mentioned smartphones earlier, but right now we're going to see things like what Elise is seeing with the brain-computer interfaces, helping the people that are disabled to be able to control machines to help them live the normal life. And you already got cochlear implants that essentially help people hear like a normal person, but it's going to, in the future, help them hear further and different wavelengths. And so that's the superhuman component as we integrate more and more of this technology with our lives. Elise, when did you first get interested in, in transhumanism as an area? It was when I was about 20 years old and I was a total humanities, humanism, arts, literature nerd. I was just obsessed with what it means to be human. And I loved poetry. I loved the arts. I was really, really interested in history. And I was getting so deeply immersed in that with my studies at the time and I think when you think about it for long enough, the next logical question that, that leaps out from there is, well, where is this all going? How does the story end? What does the next chapter look like? And the minute I started to learn about how quickly technology evolves, how quickly the amount of computing power we can cram onto a single silicon chip ratchets up, um, I started to realize that, hey, the pace of history is actually accelerating here. And that really made me deep dive into that topic and just kind of get obsessed by what is possible and what is probable and, and what is scary and how do we make maps for our future from this. And what is the map that we should be making from our future from this? What, what surprised you out of that process? Yeah, I mean, people always want to know, well, hey, what are the gadgets? What's going to happen in my lifetime? Yes, that's literally the, what I'm asking you. I want to know all of yeah. those things. <laughs> Give me the gadgets. Yes, please. Yes. I mean, the reality is that there's the general trends and the specific trends. And the easiest ones to forecast are, sadly, let down the general trends, that we can see that things are going to continue to change faster. We can see that there's going to be more artificial intelligence in our lives and in our world. And what that means is that we're going to generate a lot more economic growth using less human labor. Now, the knock-on effects for you, what does that mean for an individual human? It means disruption in ways that are really exciting but really scary, and there are downsides to that. So there's going to be more economic shocks. People are going to lose their jobs. Professions that we once thought, you know, that people would do for their entire lives are going to start contracting and some of them are going to disappear. The incredible opportunities there are that with all the, the abundance that we're creating from economic growth, that we can potentially work less, that we could have four-day working weeks, that we could have universal basic incomes that allow us to spend more time with our families, more time on human connection, more time on learning and enlightenment. But it's coming really quickly. And the, the pure disruptive aspect of that means that a lot of our 20th century life scripts are going to be challenged probably sooner than we're psychologically ready for. Peter, specifically with the concept of transhumanism, it, it's not a new concept, is it? it, it it's been around a while, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's been around since the 70s and it evolved after our moon landing. So really 
all the science and technology that uh, the sci-fi came out during that time uh, really involved and in, enlivened people's vision of the future. And obviously we've uh, gone so far since the 70s and right now what we're seeing in the 21st century is that we're actually heading beyond the moon and to Mars and becoming multi-planetary. And then helping solve humanity's biggest challenge, which is, you know, how we stick around as well to remember and reflect on these accomplishments and look forward to the future, which is all about how do we preserve our consciousness? How do we potentially extend our healthy human lifespans and eventually upload our consciousness to the cloud so that we could, you know, essentially have a backup copy whenever we need to visit a different planet or a different experience. How did you first get interested in this, Peter? Oh, for me, it was a life and death situation for me. Um, I just realized how fragile the human body was. Um, I was in Malaysia on holidays and I was robbed on the street and I woke up in hospital with all these tubes all sticking all out of my body. And, uh, you know, if the ambulance hadn't arrived in that space of time, I would have uh, essentially passed away, you know, in my late 20s. And that sort of realized that even if I was 80 years old in a healthy state, um, how fragile the human body really is and how fleeting life as it is and consciousness as it is. All those memories, all the loved ones I cared about as well, feeling that same loss at that moment. So I really delved deep into AI and how that could potentially accelerate uh, all the future of humanity as well, discovering new drugs uh, that could help extend our healthy human lifespans. But then all the cybernetics and bionics that could be coming out right now in a cheap and open source manner that could help augment our current transition to that biological extension of our healthy lifespan. But eventually the brain computer verse is, is really what really switched uh, me into the passion side with Neuralink and what that could do for the future of humanity. All right. So specifically in terms of your body, right, what are the sorts of things right now that you can see coming down the pipeline that you think are going to help people, are, are going to extend life? I mean, I, we joked a little bit earlier, there is a, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Meow Ludo, Meow Meow, uh, that is his name, uh, who is a biohacker. He had a uh, famously had a, an Opal card, which is a, the, the public transport card, um, put in his wrist so he could get on trains uh, and by waving his wrist over one of those Opal card trains. There are things like that. There's biohacking. There's also, you mentioned drugs as well. Are there, are there other specific things around there that you think actually this can change people's lives, this can extend life that you are particularly excited about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mao's working on something right now that's using the same technology that we've used for the COVID vaccines, which is messenger RNA, so mRNA. And this is something that we're funding through Transhumanism Australia and through our project Transhuman Coin to help extend that research to extending telomere length as well as looking at our biological age markets. So as a messenger RNA, programming our cells to extend that healthy lifespan is actually something his lab is working on. And that's beyond just sort of getting the headlines of having using an Opal Guard in your, in your hand right now. It's actually looking at the practical application of these new COVID vaccines. And it's been a huge boon in terms of what's happening in the biotech space, whether it's like whole genome sequencing to now gene editing with CRISPR technologies, and then applying a machine learning AI approach to the digitization of biology means that it goes through the same acceleration as Moore's law, sort of like the information technology. And that means that year on year, we're going to see an exponential growth in terms of what these will achieve, whether it's discovering new drugs, identifying AI to decipher our brain and technology and the signals that are coming through our brains, and then translating that into signals for us to augment ourselves. And there's a whole raft of other things, such as, you know, replacement parts and others we can go into. 
Elise, for you, and I don't want this just to be, you know, fully boosterism because obviously there's a whole range of ethical considerations and don't worry, we'll get into them, right? But are there particular things coming immediately down the pipeline that you can see coming that are worth kind of pointing out to people going, hey, this is on the horizon and this is likely to change people's lives imminently that are worth looking at? Oh, 100%. And I think one of the biggest ones is immunotherapy to treat cancer. So cancer and heart disease, two of the biggest killers globally and have been for a long time. And if we think about not this kind of pie-in-the-sky notion of living forever, but what everybody wants more of, which is just good quality of life, better health span, once we have, you know, we already have immunotherapy that is tailoring the treatment of your tumour to the individual genome of the tumour, the efficacy of that, uh, stands to massively eclipse any breakthrough in cancer treatment that we've ever seen. And alongside that, because of how much of this is powered, as Peter said, by Moore's law, by the ratcheting of the up of the pace of information technology, you've simultaneously got the advent of things like senolytics that knock out the old damaged cells within your body so that over time, you're doing damage repair and you're staving off that process of aging in different parts of your body. Um, and a big thing that I think is going to matter, given where the world is at the moment, that we're all really stressed out after COVID. We're all a little bit kind of on edge thinking, God, where is it all going? This this isn't feeling great. Um, I think we're going to have the ability with AI to predict things like depression and mental health issues very, very early on in the game. Almost your uh, Google or your AI will know you're depressed before you do. And I think we're going to have tailored drugs for mental health conditions that are no longer this throw mud at the wall and, and see what sticks. Because at the moment, suicide is the biggest killer of young people. And we are seeing the rates of anxiety and depression skyrocket. And this is where the advent of better AI and better transhumanist technologies stands to make a difference to everything we care about in the world right now. Yeah, and of course it is worth pointing out, you know, we, we do have to case trade quite carefully into this space, right, because we don't always know the, I guess, the impacts of, of how technology is going to impact with mental health, Elise. No, we don't. Um, and I think, though, there there is a, a tendency to, to default to the precautionary principle there and go, well, first, do no harm. We don't want to over-intervene. But the, you have to also remember that the status quo is also a conscious choice. It is like a kind of intervention. And that the scale of suffering that's happening uh, around the world right now, just purely attributable to mental health issues, is so horrific that not actually taking some swings to try and develop better therapeutics and better interventions is really kind of a moral crisis and a moral catastrophe in its own right. Mm, good point. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide normally to the week in media, technology and culture. But this week we are dedicating the whole episode to the concept of transhumanism, which is a I'll be honest with you, slightly fuzzy term that basically covers all of the sci-fi stuff. That's how I'm defining it, guys. It's basically all of the stuff that's changing about our bodies in the future. Our guests this week are Elise Bohan, the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make-or-Break Century, and Peter Zing, co-founder of Transhumanism Australia and Digital and Data Solutions Lead at KPMG. Peter, one of the ideas that's, I guess, 
I'm not going to say like a central tenet of transhumanism, but it's certainly a very popular concept within the transhumanist community, is this idea known as the singularity, right? If you had to explain to somebody the concept of the singularity, how would you go about doing so? Yeah, sure. The singularity is a concept borrowed from physics, you know, at the centre of a black hole, essentially the edge, just before you go past the point of no return, all physics breaks down because our knowledge of general relativity and quantum mechanics does not reconcile. And it's the same for technology. You know, once it's past a point of human comprehension, we have no idea what's going to happen. You know, it's expected, I think, Ray Kersel's prediction using his law of accelerating returns that by the year 2045, we're going to have more computation than the all of humans that have ever lived on Earth in terms of AI processing and also accelerations and biotech and understanding what all those signals mean. And that means that if we have an artificial general intelligence that's, you know, got the same understanding and processing as a human being and like for like, what's after that? It would be immediately super intelligent beyond that point. And that's when we have, you know, the singularity point of not really knowing what's where it's going to go with technology. Uh, Elise, should we be aiming for the singularity? Uh, this is a heck of a question. Um I don't know if aiming is the way that I would frame it. And I'm not even sure that it makes sense to talk about aiming because by definition, this is something that's not really in our power to control. We have so much AI in our world already, and it does have this kind of self-amplifying nature that more technology tends to engender more technology at a faster and faster rate. So once we have powerful enough AI, there reaches a point or you kind of say in the AI community, AI go foom, it just shoots up in this kind of exponential trajectory. And there is a kind of tipping point where you're kind of at a lock-in on a pathway to a singularity. And often it's not because you're trying to get there. You're trying to do other things. You're trying to build more efficient economic systems and trade networks. You're using AI to solve health problems. You're putting it to doing research and number crunching and data analysis. And it gets smarter and smarter. And there's more of these AIs in the world. And at a certain point, there's this kind of takeoff or this inflection point. And what that really is, like Peter was saying, this is a kind of metaphor from physics. It's kind of this event horizon where once you hit a singularity, you have no ability to see what's on the other side of that. You're talking about minds that are orders orders of magnitude more powerful than our own. By definition, it it would be like a cockroach trying to understand what it's like to be a human by comparison. There's just no frame of reference that makes that world make sense. But what I think could be really good about an AI saturated future, whether it's a singularity or something before that threshold, is more ability to solve complex problems, more knowledge, better healthcare, better ideas, and the tools that we really need right now to solve complex global sustainability challenges. Because what I really talk about in my book is the idea that we've still got these ape brains, we've still got these paleolithic human brains walking around in these crazy complex modern civilizations. And we've got to solve climate change. We've got to solve the threat of nuclear war. We've got to solve all of these big global challenges that we're really too tribal and short-termist to conquer. And for that, the, the weird paradox is that we do need more AI. 
the thing I'm struggling to wrap my head around is that those, all those problems you just described, they are all human created problems. And there's a little part of me that wonders like, shouldn't humans be the ones that kind of fix it? Asking AI to fix our problems for us seems somehow like abrogating responsibility to me, Elise. And I don't know why I think about it in those terms. Am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. I think humans have to be part of the solution, but that our key role is to create more collective intelligence in the global system. Because unfortunately, we don't have the wherewithal to really keep these complex balls juggling for a long time. They're such big threats. The threat even now of bioengineered pathogens and future pandemics is such a big one. And absolutely, we need humans to take responsibility for this. And certainly in the short term, we need our politicians, we need our policy people really, really focused on the big existential threats to humanity. But can we keep things like nuclear weapons in play for hundreds and hundreds more years while it only takes one dumb ape to push the button? I really don't think that we can. And we need an ability to think less tribally, to think more long-term. And the human brain is just not wired for that. And I really think we need a little help from our AI friends. And our role is to invent them. Peter, do you ever worry about artificial intelligence and the way it can be mishandled or misprogrammed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, artificial intelligence is like a technology, like all the other tools that humanity has created like fire, right? You know, it can be used for good or bad. And it depends on really who's using it for what intentions. And the way that we could help, you know, alleviate and mitigate those risks is to have embed in place things that way where there's market failure, where there's dangers and mitigating those risks. So regulations need to be thought of right now before we see, for example, the Tesla robots potentially harming others on the street. But humanity isn't you know, caught up to that point yet. Society will have no idea what the potential dangers until they see it, you know, a robot on the street murdering somebody, right? That's something that you can only see in sci-fi movies, but not really tangible for everyone today. And so this is why we need to educate the public and portray those visions around what that future looks like. Um, it's hard because democracies, in a sense, only illustrates and puts our hand up for regulation when those challenges are born by the people. So the technology is always one step slightly ahead of the regulations. Elise, when it comes to artificial intelligence, what's alarmism and what's reasonable scepticism for you? I think alarmism is anything that comes directly out of a movie like The Terminator or particularly actually HAL 9000 from um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. This idea that the robot turns evil and it hates you and it wants to murder you and it's just got this insidious intent. I, I don't think that's anything on the spectrum of what we need to worry about. But most people's fears, even if they're expressed through that lens, I actually think they're really legitimate fears. We are talking about technologies that, for better and worse, are going to transform every facet of what it means to be human and what good lives look like and how we navigate reality. And that's discombobulating even when it's good. So we should take people's concerns seriously when they say, hey, might a robot steal my job? The answer for some people is is yes. Um, we should also take seriously the idea that on a larger scale, if, if AI is unleashed at a human level or a superhuman level, that it could be an existential threat in itself, that it could really um, imperil the surviving and thriving of intelligent life 
and humanity and everything that we value. It is one of the biggest risks we have ever faced as a species because it is the kind of black box, black box technology that we don't understand well. And it's a bit of a kind of Hail Mary situation of how it's going to play out. It's interesting that you say that because I, I do also sort of slightly wonder that as inaccurate as, you know, the, the Terminator scenarios may well be, the role they play is cautionary tales. I wonder if there's a purpose in them in terms of focusing our attention on thinking about the ethical implications of this stuff as they become real. You know, like in the sense that like, <clears throat> yes, okay, sure, Terminator was unlikely to become a real thing in and of itself. But the fact that we have that collective imagination means that when, you know, stuff like artificial intelligence and machine learning comes up, we, whenever it comes up, we have to stop and think, what do we do? What do we make sure of so that that dystopian vision of the future doesn't come to fruition? Like, did, does popular culture have a role to play in that sense, Elise? Yes and no. I mean, yeah. So the, the purpose of these tales, it's not necessarily in all of the specifics and the granular detail, but it's about this idea of humans situating themselves in relation to other forces. And there I think stories like Frankenstein are actually a really interesting and and beautiful way to to think about what's happening. I know most people sort of think about Frankenstein as this kind of this great warning of of scientific hubris, but there's actually another fantastic angle to that story, which is really of the other, of what happens when you create something that isn't human, but also is conscious and has feelings and has agency in the world. And what happens when there's not a shared narrative about how they inhabit the world together. The danger that a story like that highlights, for example, is just the peril of not working with technologies and not being mindful of the rights of both entities that are sharing a planet together. Elise, you know, obviously this is, is slightly more complicated than, you know, a, a binary black or white mirror future that we're looking at here. But but how much of, you know, the, the sort of the decades of transhumanist theorising about how our bodies would interact with technology and the internet, how whether our humanity would stay on this planet or move overseas, how much of that do you think is likely to, as you look towards the future, Elise? I think it's extremely likely. I don't think we're all going to get on rocket ships and move to Mars. I think that's that's a total red herring. Damn. And I think that was the one I was <laughs> banking on. Damn it. It's the sexy one. It's the exciting one for sure. But also less sexy once you get there and realize it's a sterile, barren, <laughs> horrible planet. It's true. Barren planets are not sexy. It's true. And they're not really. But they're they're real. The real crux of where all the change is coming from is going to be AI. And on that front, this is why it's a make or break century. This is why you're living through one of the most interesting, scary and um, future-shaping times that has ever existed on this planet or for our species. AI is going to ratchet up to a level this century where fundamentally I expect everything about what it means to be human other than consciousness and other than knowledge and intellect gets changed in weird and wonderful ways. And on that final thought, Elise, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great to be here. Elise Bohan is the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Also, very big thank you to Peter Zing. Bye. Bye. 
Peter Zing is co-founder of Transhumanism Australia and Digital and Data Solutions Lead at KPMG. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to a very special episode of Download This Show.